Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to this week's message. My name's Aaron, and I'm on the staff team here at Eastlake. Everything we do around here depends on the generous donations of our local and online community. People just like you, who tune into these messages and see great benefit from living that idea that life is a gift and love is the point. So if you love what Eastlake is up to, we'd encourage you to contribute by going to eastlakecc.com. With that, let's jump into this week's message. Today, we hear from Pete Rollins as he continues our series, The Way I See It. Please check the description for links to our quarterly Spotify playlist and guided meditation. Hello there, Eastlake. How's it going? Um, I don't know why I'm asking you how it's going because you can't really respond to me. But then we don't usually ask that question for a response. It's more of a social nicety. So there you go. How's it going? Um, But I do wish I was there saying it in person. Um, I've got a great relationship with Eastlake and I love Seattle. And so the idea of doing this from my living room instead of being there with you and then hanging out with some of you afterwards, uh, that's just a bit sad. But uh, I'm hoping that that will happen again sooner rather than later. I was still very honored to be invited to speak in this virtual way. Um, And what I'm going to do then is talk for about half an hour, 20 minutes on the subject, and then we're going to do a live interview. Uh, So the subject is, oh, I have to introduce myself as well. Uh, My name is Peter Rollins. Um, It's always hard to know what to say, isn't it? Uh, I'm trained in continental philosophy, psychoanalytic theory, and I facilitate a movement called Parotheology, and you'll find it online if you type in my name or Parotheology. Um, But uh, what do I want to talk about today? Well, the series is called um, The Way I See It. And at first I was want to do it. And I talked to uh, Peter Gadd and I was like, I don't know if I could contribute very much to this. And he was asking me why. And I said, well, it's because there's something in the phrase that, um, you know, just, just doesn't quite sit with me. And he said, we'll talk about that. So that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> um, so this title is called The Way I See It. I Don't Know The Way I See It. And the reason why I'm saying that is because there's a very common sense notion that we know how we see things. We know what we believe and we know what we desire, right? I don't necessarily know what you believe. I don't necessarily know what you desire, but I definitely, I know what I believe and I know what I want. I mean, I hang about with myself all the time. I'm in here all the time. If there's anything I can be sure about, it's about my own inner world, my own desires, my own thoughts about how the world functions. I may be wrong about stuff, but at least I know it. Now, the problem with this idea is that actually um, we expend a lot of psychic energy to protect us from the traumatic truth that actually we don't know ourselves. We don't know what we desire. We don't know what we believe. Um, I often get asked the question, what do you believe in in light of my work? And it's the idea that I am transparent to myself. I'm like, no, I'm not transparent to myself. We are enigmas to ourselves. But, and here's the issue, we're not simply an enigma to ourselves. That itself is an enigma. 
In other words, it's not just that I don't know myself. I don't know that I don't know myself, right? I have to first of all break through the first prohibition, which is a censorship in which I'm not allowed to even know that I don't know myself, <laughs> to come to that, that knowledge of my own uh, mystery. Now, that can all sound very strange. I want to start to unpack it. So what does it mean to not know your own beliefs, your own desires, your own uh, deepest thoughts? Well, so in psychoanalysis, there is this idea of the unconscious. There's an idea that we have conflictual desires that are going on within us. We can hate the person that we love. We can love the person that we hate. We can want to go out or stay in. We can want to be around people and want to be alone. And all of these things are going on within us. And the manifestation of these conflicts is called the symptom. The symptom is a type of coagulation of some sort of conflict or contradiction within your subjectivity. So perhaps you have fatigue whenever you're working. And through enough reflection and analysis, we discover that you want to be productive, you want to work hard, but also you want to protest against being productive. You want to fight against that. And you discover that it's not that you want to be productive, it's that your father always wanted you to be productive. And this desire for productivity is not even really your desire. And there's a part of you that's protesting against this desire that's within you. So every time you sit down to work, your mind goes blank, right? Because there's some sort of protest against this desire that is within you. And you discover these conflictual desires, as I say, that then manifest in symptoms. And symptoms, in a way, are the truth that you cannot speak. The truth that you cannot speak finding its way of speaking. So the symptom speaks what you cannot say. Now, the other way this arises is in what's called parapraxis, right? Praxis meaning actions. Para meaning outside of, say, uh, outside of the, um, the authority structure. So you have paramilitary groups, right? A, a military group that is outside the kind of the, the authority structure of the military. So a parapraxis is an action you do that's outside the authority of your consciousness. It's something that erupts within you uh, without you knowing where it came from. It's precisely that action where you go, oh, that's not me. I burst into tears for no reason in the car. I shouted for no reason at this. I suddenly got terrified of, of, of something um, that seems completely normal, right? These, oh, these are weird things. That's not who I am. Well, in psychoanalysis, actually, those parapraxis, those Freudian slips, actually tell you something about a desire, um, an anxiety, a belief that is in you that you do not know. It's something you know, but you don't know that you know something is erupting within you. Or if, for example, you always think that there is some murderer outside your house at night, right? You hear a twig snap and you immediately are certain that there's somebody outside who's trying to kill you. Well, the murderer isn't outside the house. That murderer is inside you, right? You, it's, that is a projection of something that's going on inside you, some proximity, some dangerous proximity that you're feeling that's potentially connected to something in your past, right? Some, some relationship to your father or to your mother that's playing out. But we think that the murderer is outside. Now, of course, if there's enough noise and you see the handle move, that's different, right? But it's if 
for no reason at all, you're always thinking there's something under the bed or in the cupboard. It's just like the child who thinks there's a monster under the bed. We all know the monster isn't under the bed, the monster is inside them, but they haven't been able to integrate that something of their own trauma. And because they haven't been able to integrate it, they've they've put it under the bed. Uh, Wilfred Beale, psychoanalyst, he talks about things called uh, beta elements. A beta element is an experience in your life that is something that you cannot put into words. And often this happens obviously when you're very young, when you're pre-symbolic, when you don't really have adequate language to describe things. And a child has an experience that's just too much. They can't put it into words, they can't speak it, and so they act out. They experience the world is falling apart. And this is a beta element. It's like something that happens to you, but you can't articulate, which is called in philosophy a saturated phenomenon something that occurs that is just too much and can't be uh, can't be symbolized and then beyond says that the parent uh, is an alpha function and what that means is the parent uh, takes this trauma of the child and they begin to put it into language they begin to speak it, help the child understand what's going on in their life, what they're feeling. And it helps kind of take that beta element and kind of like put it into some sort of understandable thing, soothing the child through, through language. And what I like about this is basically by calling it the beta element and the alpha function, you go, oh, the rule of the parent is to alphabetize the trauma alphabetize to bring it into language and into the symbolic so that you can begin to understand what it is. So when you hear that murderer outside of the, the window, that's a beta element. There's something about that that's unspoken. There's some part, some trauma that has not been put into words. It hasn't been alphabetized, and so it's pushed out. So what I'm trying to discuss here is how, despite you know, our everyday experience of life. There's all of these desires that are within us and beliefs that we're not even aware of. And by the way, they're not even our desire. So, um, for example, I have a friend who uh, a while back, he was late about three times in a row for me. He would get a train um, to where I lived and he would always, something would go wrong, and he would get the wrong train, he'd misread the timetable, he'd forget his phone so he wouldn't be able to call me to say he was coming up to visit. So I would go to the train station to pick him up, and half the time he wasn't there. And at one point, uh, I was at the train station, he wa- wasn't there, he got the next train out, I hung around, I was a bit frustrated, I was like, oh, you know, you're always doing this. And he says, yeah, no, I'm just incompetent, I'm just incompetent. And now what I realized, because I know a little bit about his past, I was like, oh, right, you, you feel incompetent in your life. There's something about you feel that you're a failure, you're incompetent, you can't do things. But you haven't been able to um, articulate that. And so what you've done is you want me to experience that, right? So you want me to think that you're incompetent. That, you're, that you can't do anything, that you won't amount to anything. You want me to feel that, because that's how you feel about yourself. You feel that about yourself, but you haven't been able to integrate it. So you've put it onto me, so that I feel about you the way you feel about yourself, without knowing it, right? Now here's the trick, is you have to be careful with this. 
It's not that he thinks he's incompetent. It's not that I exposed a desire within him so suddenly he realizes, oh, I think I'm useless and I'm good for nothing, right? No, then the next level is, oh, that's how I felt my father felt about me. That my father was constantly disappointed in me and that I wasn't able to live up to something that I'm always making mistakes. Now, if my friend had been late for the train once or twice, that would be fine. But it was the fact that there was always this very convoluted series of a, a cascade of problems that drew out the sense that there was something else going on. So when I was able to feed back to him, oh, that's how you feel about yourself. And he's like, yeah, I do feel incompetent and I do feel that I'll never amount to anything and I'm lazy. And then you go, okay, who comes to mind whenever you think that? Like, oh, my father. And my relationship with my father. Now, the truth is, it's not even that his father did think that, right? But that was definitely, at a, at a very important point in his life, a feeling that he had. And the truth is, it goes even deeper than this. I'm just, I mean, and I'm doing this, I know it, I, this might seem very abstract, but actually it's very, very important to understand this, is that his father wasn't disappointed in him. His father was disappointed in himself. So his father had all of these issues in terms of not feeling that he lived up to things, that he was never good enough, never right enough. And he was obsessively pushing and was a very, very productive man. Uh, but the productivity came from this sense of never being enough that was passed into his son. But his son, it manifested in a different way. So he, his son was not productive. His son was always failing at production because there was some sort of protest within it. So what you suddenly see is just being late for meeting a friend at a train station opens up these multiple layers of desire and that we're not even infused with our own desire. We're often infused with the desire of somebody else, like a foreign body that, that's within us. I went out with somebody who, she was a lawyer and she desired to be a lawyer and she went and she studied law and she did a master's in law. But she also had this real desire to be an artist and a performer. And what she then discovered is that she discovered that her desire to be a lawyer was kind of weirdly not her desire. It was her desire and she desired it, but she didn't desire her desire. There was something foreign to it. And that was coming up in unhealthy ways. So in daily life, we try to avoid this confrontation with this craziness that we are, you know. Um, the other thing, by the way, is reaction formations. Is often someone who's really into apologetics, for example, is riven with uncertainty and doubt. So the very thing that someone presents, like, oh, I'm certain about X, Y, and Z, that is actually the evidence of precisely the opposite. If someone is always posting pictures where they're happy uh, on Instagram and they're leading the perfect life, you know, often that's a reaction formation because there's something disavowed in that person's life that they're not looking at. And so they're lying. Now, they're not lying to you. They're lying to themselves. They're putting out these images, these mirror images that they would like to say they are to precisely avoid a confrontation with some dark stuff and difficult things that might be going on in their lives. Whenever you're truly happy, you don't really need to tell people you're happy, right? You kind of you almost forget to tell people you're happy because you're just enjoying your life. Mm. So even whenever you meet someone who seems like they, they're so full of themselves and they love themselves and they're always talking about themselves, you'll sometimes find that they hate themselves and they don't even know it. Or 
Uh, another common thing is you'll meet people who go out and party all the time. They're always around people. They're always the life and soul because they can't stand to be alone. I had a member of my family who went to the doctors because she had some physical ailments and they couldn't, they, they couldn't figure out anything that was wrong. There was nothing biologically wrong. And the doctor said, you know, maybe you're depressed. And she went, I'm not depressed, you know. And uh, you know, I'm always out, I'm always talking to people, I've always got friends around, I'm always doing stuff. No, I, I, I'm living life. And the doctor said, well, I don't know, maybe you are depressed. And she went home and very gradually she was like, oh, I am, I'm in despair and I don't even know that I'm in despair. As Kierkegaard says, the despair of not knowing you're in despair, which manifests itself in excessive hedonism, right? So part, and this is why, by the way, you'll read in the gospels, um, very little about what to believe. It's not about what you believe, right? The beliefs are just the commonplace of what people believed at the time. Often what Jesus is doing is helping you confront your disavowed beliefs, helping be a mirror or a screen so that you can see parts of yourself that you'd rather not see, right? You think of yourself as moral and ethical and good, and then you see yourself and go, oh my goodness, I've got all of this anger and hatred and darkness in me. And so that notion of you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free is the idea that Religion at its best is not trying to tell you what to believe. It's simply helping you to see the truth of your beliefs. You start to alphabetize. You start to see and are able to talk about and experience what you're repressing. And that act is in and of itself transformative. That act in and of itself does something. Hey, East Lake, Peter here. Thanks so much for tuning in to watch this message. I wanted to do just a quick interruption to say thank you to so many of you who are making regular contributions to Eastlake. Eastlake is a nonprofit and everything that we do is because of a community of consistent and generous people who really believe in this place and want to see it continue. So uh, if you're a part of that community, thank you for how you make this place go. If you are tuning in regularly and are a part of this community, but you haven't yet um, jumped in to making a financial contribution, we would encourage you to do that and encourage you to go to eastlakecc.com to help support Eastlake as a community and continue to make these messages possible. Thanks so much for uh, letting me interrupt your message. Let's jump back in. So where do I want to go with this? Well, the next step is very important. And this is why you can't meditate your way to the unconscious, right? Is this stuff that we push down, that we hide, these parts of ourselves that we can't bear to look at, which by the way are connected primarily with um, uh, something that we feel we're missing in our lives. There's something we feel we're missing. There's some lack within us and it comes out in jealousy and an envy, right? So jealousy and envy are these two, whenever you see jealousy and envy, you can generally tell there's something that the person feels they're lacking at the very core of their being. Um, to be jealous is to desire an object uh, that someone else has. And to experience envy is to desire the relationship that person has with the object. Right, so jealousy is when you want the object that someone else has, and envy is when you want the type of relationship that that person has with the object. So for example, you might be jealous of your friend because you desire their partner, right? You really desire the person they're going out with, so that's jealousy. 
Envy is where you don't desire their partner, but you desire the type of relationship that person has with their partner, or what you think the type of relationship is they have with their partner, right? And the problem is what we do is when we see other people having what we want or having the relationship to an object that we want, uh, we feel jealousy and we feel envy. And that comes out sometimes as self-righteousness. It comes out in all sorts of disavowed ways and repressed ways. We don't admit to ourselves that we're jealous of our enemies. We hate them. We think, look how arrogant they are. Look how terrible they are. I would never be like that. I would hate to have what they had, right? Whenever deep down, unconsciously, we would love to have what they have, or that's part of a desire that's, that's within us. Um, and so it manifests that we create enemies and we hate others. But here's the trick. The other is primarily a screen upon which we're projecting the disavowed parts of ourselves, the parts of ourselves that we cannot bear to face. This happens a lot. I, by the way, just to give you a few examples, and when I was doing psychoanalysis, I wrote a check uh, to my analyst, and on the check I wrote the amount um, $1,690. And that wasn't what I owed her at all. Um, that number is actually um, 1690, which is a year uh, of a conflict that happened that's very, very big in Northern Ireland. They, they celebrate this battle of uh, 1690, and it's connected with this idea of Ulster says no. It's, it's about a defiant battle, and it's used politically as a kind of like a protest against a united Ireland, and so it's Ulster says no. And I, without knowing it, I wrote this check, which was a type of protest, a type of saying no to my analyst. One time I was supposed to meet a friend in a coffee shop and I went to the coffee shop. It was 45 minutes away. I said, why are they trying to meet me in this coffee shop when we live, we were actually living together at the time. Why are we going to this coffee shop? And then once I bought my coffee and my food, um, I wondered, I wonder if there's another coffee shop of the same name that's close to the house. And of course there was one five minutes away. And instead of just going, oh, I made a mistake, I was like, oh, is there some reason why I came to this coffee shop? I was like, oh, I don't want to meet my friend. There's some issue. And so going to the wrong coffee shop actually told me something that I was not, not telling myself about not wanting to meet my friend. That the, as soon as I ordered the food, so I was committed to staying at the coffee shop, I'd order food, which I don't usually do at a coffee shop. I ordered food, I was like just paying for it. And I was like, oh, I bet you this is the wrong coffee shop. Like, okay, that's telling you something. So if, if you can cultivate a curiosity with your own slips, with your own issues, you might find that it tells you something. Uh, like even not being able to find the keys whenever you're going to your parents' house might tell you that you don't want to go to your parents' house. Um, so what we do is this is not deep within us. Right? The, this, this kind of uh, repressed part of ourselves is not something that we find through med meditating and going deep within us because it's out there in the world. It's on other people. If you want to know your disavowed self, you don't kind of lock yourself in a room and meditate. Meditation can be useful and good, but the, here's the, the scary thing. If you want to know about yourself, look at your enemies. Right? They will tell you about yourself. Right? Now, the other thing, by the way, is sometimes your enemies are people that, that you disagree with, right? Sometimes you've got political opponents or people in your community or in your family who you have genuine disagreements with and you have conflict with, right? That's different. 
if your enemies bring out psychotic or neurotic anxiety, they, they, they create affect within you that, that make you kind of like unhinged in various ways, then that's evidence that there's something in them that is a disavowed part of yourself. And that you are seeing not them, you're seeing yourself in a disavowed way. And uh, Lacan, the psychoanalyst, put this brilliantly when he said that if a man is jealous that his wife is having an affair, and then it turns out that his wife is having an affair, the husband can still be pathologically jealous. So in other words, the jealousy, if it's pathological, uh, yes, it's historically right. Okay, his wife is having an affair, but still the jealousy is pathological. Even if she wasn't, he'd still be feeling jealous. <laughs> and so sometimes our enemy is someone who is particularly good at allowing us to project onto because there's things that we genuinely disagree with them about. But whenever it's pathological, whenever it's part of our disavowed cells, when we're getting them to carry these dark and repressed parts of ourselves, our own lack, then you're, the evidence of it is it brings out anger. It brings out, as I say, various forms of anxiety. It's, it's, it brings out a really strong unreasonableness within us. That's the evidence that we're not seeing them, but we're seeing a part of ourselves. Now, why am I talking about all of this? Well, this is called projection. Um, projection is where, yes, I take some part of myself and I put it onto the other. And also transference. Transference is where I take an early relationship style. So I was talking about my friend at the train station, a type of relationship that he had with his father and his father had with his father and transferred that type of relationship onto the relationship with me so that I would become his father, judging him as incompetent, kind of expressing a part of his own feelings about himself that are kind of like uh, uh, imprinted into him. So that's transference, projection and transference. These ideas are central to Christianity. You can chart the genealogy of these to, to Christianity proper and into Judaism. So in Judaism, you have the scapegoat mechanism. You literally took the, the jealousies and the envy that would grow up within a community could, would always threaten to destroy it. Any community will eventually come to a point and any family where, where jealousies and, and envies can threaten to wipe it out. So the solution with the scapegoat mechanism is that you put all of that lack onto the goat and you send the goat out into the wilderness. You kind of like let them carry the lack that you can't tolerate within yourselves. Now interestingly within Christianity, the idea is that we put all of this lack, this, this repressed stuff, onto Christ. Christ takes on all of the lack of the world. And here's the trick. Well, Christ is innocent. So we put all of that stuff onto Christ and say Christ is the problem. He is the obstacle to God, obstacle to the utopia, obstacle to the great community, obstacle to everything that would be wonderful, right? And then we see that, oh, He's innocent. We've, this, everything we've put onto him is our own, right? That's me, Every, that's my lack, sin being lack. That's my lack put onto the other. And then you realize the structure and you have to then take it back and tarry with it. And so this is what's called the forgiveness of sin or the forgiveness of debt, right? Uh, where it's very, in a nutshell, 
A debt is a nothingness that is something. If you have no money, that's a nothing. But if you have debt, that's a nothingness that is something, a nothingness that gets you to have to work hard and jobs you don't want, getting letters telling you that they're gonna repossess your house, giving you heart disease, all of that. A debt is a type of lack that is something. Just like there's a difference between not talking in a relationship and not talking, right? Not talking is not saying something, but after an argument, not talking is saying nothing, right? One is saying nothing, the other is saying nothingness itself. Or your phone not ringing when you're in a coffee shop, that's nothing. But if you're waiting for a call, that phone not ringing has, is something, it's, it's substantive in its silence. So a debt is a substantive nothingness, it's a lack, right? If you pay a debt, you fill the lack, you fill it with something, right? You, you get rid of it by paying it. If you forgive a debt, you say that the nothingness that is something is a nothingness that is nothing, right? If you, if you forgive a debt, you say, oh, you don't, I'm not going to pay that $100. That $100 is nothing. So in Christianity, there's this notion of the forgiveness of debt, which is this lack that is so intense within us that we have to get rid of and we put on to enemies, we put on to others. We, 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 so we, and this is the, obviously the definition of fascism, right? The fascist is the community that says, everything could be whole and complete and wonderful if only we got rid of that group of people, right? So fascism is based on the idea of organic wholeness, oneness, balance, that is being disturbed by some figure, by some individual, who if only we got rid of them, everything would be great. And that individual is the individual that carries the repressed lack, the thing that we cannot see in ourselves is put into them. And obviously within fascism, the figure of the Jew is, is that figure who they think if we got rid of the Jewish community, we would get rid of the lack, not realizing that the lack is within them, that if they got rid of the Jewish community, it wouldn't be a solution. It would simply now, um, they would be forced to look at how that that lack is within themselves. So that's what the crucifixion is. It is where we put all of this onto the other. We realize that they are innocent, that we are crucifying them. And therefore then we have to take back that lack, but in a way that is now forgiven, in a way that we can bear the weight of it. Now this is nothing mystical. This is what we do all the time, right? So in our contemporary society, there's this phenomenon I saw recently called Karens. And Karens is where you people take their own intolerance and their own angers and lacks and they put it onto a group, usually middle-aged women, um, uh, who kind of like, who sadly, the, the people who concretely incarnate a Karen are sometimes people who are mentally ill, sometimes people who are just either neurotic or neurotically anxious. Maybe sometimes they are nasty people. Maybe the video is out of context. It doesn't matter. What they do is they provide a great way to be a scapegoat, that we take parts of ourselves, put it onto them, and we laugh at it, we, we ridicule, we condemn, and we feel great for it, because that's what happens. A community unified around a shared hatred of another is always intoxicating. It's wonderful. You know, you share the videos, you have a laugh at the, at the, at the stupidity of the other. Not realizing that, that you're getting so much libidinal enjoyment from that because there's something that you're disavowing within yourself. If you're able to confront that, then all of that libidinal enjoyment will be gone and maybe you'll still dislike certain people, but it, there won't be that anxiety or that, that intoxication that's connected to it. Um, 
you can change basically the enemy into your neighbor. Right? That's very important in Christianity. Is an enemy is someone that you can cut out of society and kill, destroy, get rid of. A neighbor, um, so there's basically friend and enemy, right? Those are two categories. A friend is safe, an enemy is dangerous. A friend is close, uh, a, 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 an enemy is far. Um, a, a friend um, is, is someone who is light, the, the, the enemy is dark, etc. The neighbor it, it breaks these categories because the neighbor isn't a friend or an enemy. Your neighbor you can be friendly with or they can be terrible, right? But a neighbor is someone you have to live with. They're part of the same community structure as you. You can't, they're not a cancer that can be cut out. They, you literally share walls with them. I had a neighbor, when I was in Belfast, we shared a wall and he would play loud music late into the night. He was part of the paramilitary organization. And I had to confront him. He was a very tough guy. Like I had to confront him because I, you know, he was a neighbor and we had to find a way to relate. And I had to tell him that he was like disturbing my sleep. Um, and he was able to accept that and was able to, like, I was worried I was going to get beaten up, to be honest. <laughs> and, uh, but he was, he was okay. And he wasn't a friend, wasn't an enemy. He was a neighbor, somebody who I was connected. So in society, we're, we're dialectically connected to people that we don't like. And if we think of them as an enemy, we think, oh, we can cut them out and everything will be great. If they are a neighbor, it's like, oh, no, I have to have conflict with these people. I have to fight with them. I have to work this stuff out. War is the inability to have conflict, right? Um, so, the, this, oh yeah, with Christianity, um, you see the very genesis of these ideas that are used every day in, in the clinic. Um, they come from, from, from this, this notion of the crucifixion. And so to be a Christian, uh, I would say, is to enter into this breakdown of the scapegoat mechanism. It's to realize that there's parts of ourselves that we cannot face, relationship things and desires that we are trying to avoid, the jealousies and envies that we try to avoid with our what's called ideal ego, which is our sense of self. We have our ideal ego, which is who I am, <laughs> which is the person you put on Instagram, the person you put on Facebook, that's the ideal ego um, that, that we often think we are. Right? And one of the reasons why we put this stuff on Instagram is the likes uh, help us. It's like the mother saying, putting you, the child in front of the mirror and saying, that's you, look at, you're brilliant, you're beautiful. Because the child really is weak and fragile, but the, the mother holds the child in front of the mirror and says, look, you're beautiful and powerful. And uh, you know, the child then kind of gets joy from this. In the same way, we feel sometimes weak and sad and we put our images on the Instagram and we get likes. Oh, that's who you are. You're happy. You're having a great life. You're having a wonderful time. And then it's like, oh yeah, that's great. I really am. So the ideal ego covers over all of this stuff. Then we put it onto the other. And then we hate them. We make them into an enemy. And we try to cut them out. The challenge that we have, and I think this is, as I say, central to, to Christianity, is that actually we need to take back what we put onto the other. We need to realize that we are putting our lack onto someone who is innocent, who doesn't need it, who doesn't deserve it. Maybe they deserve something. Maybe they've done something wrong, but then we can argue with them about that. But that they're not some sort of demon or enemy or monster. They are actually the manifestation of the monster that we carry in a disavowed way. And so the challenge we have 
is to cultivate a curiosity with our own selves, to realize that I am an enigma to myself. There are parts of me that I don't know. That actually, instead of concentrating on what do I believe and what do I not believe, maybe I need a space where I can start to confront who I am and my desires and my fears and my anxieties and my jealousies and my envies. And I can see how I put them onto the other. And I can begin to see the other as my unknown face. And as we do that, we then find a way to integrate those parts of ourselves into ourselves in a healthier way. And we will be less violent. We will be less destructive. We will be more caring. We will be more compassionate. I think this is central to the experience of entering into the crucifixion. Thanks very much. Thank you for joining us. To make a donation, head to eastlakecc.com slash donate.